Hello and welcome to the Economics of Learning podcast. I'm your host, Don Killingbeck. I am joined today with Scott Sawyer. Scott is Deputy Superintendent of Second ISD. Very excited to have him on the podcast today. Scott, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I know you, some people tuning in might know you, but there's gonna be a lot of people that don't. Sure. Um, well, I started my career in public education back in 2003, where uh, I worked at Chesning Middle School as, a, I guess, an algebra teacher, a pre-algebra teacher. Um, really had a great time, uh, as much as, as as good of a time as you can have with algebra. Um, I We had it. Um, around 2006, I uh, transitioned at Chesning, and I became their director of finance to work in their business office. And then in 2010, I moved to Birch Run School District, where I was also their finance director. And while I was at Birch Run, um, I attended law school at Western Michigan University. And upon graduation and licensure, I decided what's the best way to make my my experience live together as a teacher, as a business manager, as a lawyer. Um, and around that time, I think within a year of graduating law school, the HR director job opened up at Saginaw Intermediate School District. Um, so I started here in 2015. Um, about a year and a half ago, I also took over the role of finance director. Um, so kind of straddled both the finance and HR departments. And, um, you know, most recently my title was changed to deputy superintendent. So I kind of have a broad stroke experience in public education. So going backwards, you actually, so you're an algebra teacher, math teacher. You were a a business uh, director in a K-12 for, it sounds like about 10 years. Yeah, yeah. uh, Two different districts. So so classroom teacher, central office. Then you jump to the ISD, you, you're working in HR there for a number of years, and then you become the, you kind of straddle both roles. You get the business office and the HR. And so this, this podcast is about the economics of learning. And when we think about school budgets, do you, is there a marriage between HR and the, the, the business office? Or how does that work? How did it work when you weren't in charge of both? How does it work now? Yeah. Um, well, uh, Dr. Killingbeck, of course, you're you're at a small local, just just as my experience was for that decade. And you know, you you wear multiple hats, um, uh, so you you have to find ways to make things live together. So while I was at Bertrand and Chesney, um, even though my title was director of finance, I definitely had my hands full with um, you know the HR side as well, whether it was onboarding new employees or um, negotiating. And so it seemed to be a good marriage here at the ISD, um, even even at, I guess, a, a larger organization. It seems to work very well. I think the, the primary relationship between the two is that 70 to 80% of, of a local school district or an ISD's budget is tied up in its human resources, its teachers, its administrators, its support staff, and so on. Um, there's so much that goes into um, managing the you know such a large staff or such a large percentage of your budget being staff um you can take a simple process like collective bargaining you know the, the process of negotiating with the unions um it's a big hr function uh there's a lot of rules uh, you know as far as bargaining but those contracts are ultimately going to dictate 70 to 80 percent of the budget 
Um, so finance, whether it's you know me in a single single role of HR and finance, or whether your HR and finance are separate, they both have to be a part of that table. When you think about a multi-year collective bargaining agreement, you're talking about a single contract that might cover tens of millions of dollars of expenses um, of taxpayer dollars over you know a three-year period. That's huge. Um, and aside from that, just Thinking about the the cost of hiring people, uh, if you hire a poor employee, um, it's impacting the budget. Uh, it's going to cost you money, uh, whether you're talking about efficiency or the cost of eliminating a position. Um, but additionally, that that directly is impacting kids. So having good hiring practices is so important. That's why so many superintendents have developed really good skills, not just to handle the budget, but also to handle the human element. That's a very, uh, very good answer. I really appreciate you kind of explaining the the marriage between business and uh, HR and how they work. It's it's always a delicate dance between those two. Mm -hmm. uh, now I assume that since you're over both, it's a little bit easier dance because you're able to, you know, um, you're able to talk and have that inner dialogue yourself. Because what I see sometimes watching larger organizations is the HR department's like, can you imagine what we could do if we had X, Y, and Z in the the business departments over on the other side going, yeah, I can imagine the layoffs we're going to have in, in another year if we don't manage uh, <laughs> our hiring practices. That, that conversation is all an internal conflict kind of now, isn't it? Yeah. It, it, what's nice about being in charge of both departments is we can have joint joint meetings and get everybody in a room and kind of talk some of those issues through um, so that one side sees what the other side's doing and vice versa. I mean, there's other obvious connections such as, um, you know, how payroll functions and, and payroll really is a split function between human resources and the finance office, but just having us together so we can have, whether, whether I'm having it internally or whether we're having it out loud as a group to really talk about what do we need to properly staff and what are the costs of doing that? Fantastic. So, Scott, in what ways is K-12 schools like a business? When you think about K-12 and you think about whether it be intermediate school districts or uh, LEAs, local uh, education associations, how do you see them as a business? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a fair amount of commonality between us and, say, uh, private sector, sector business, a factory or something along those lines. Um, we all have business costs. And so, sometimes that goes unseen because we get used to the community element that, that a school district is. And we look at it as this kind of community or public service. But I mean, we have all the normal costs of a business. Uh, we have staffing costs, benefit costs, um, supplies. Those are the things that people are used to seeing. But I mean, we also have buildings. We have capital outlay expenditures. We have transportation costs. Um, you know, so we're dealing with things like utility expenses and contracts for fuel, um, just like any other business would. And, uh, you know, not just on the expense side, but just think of the normal logistics uh, that a business has. Uh, routing buses, doing those transportation routes, uh, measuring input and output data um, has become a huge field in public education over the last 15 years. Just how are we measuring what we're doing? So um, I think there's a lot of commonality that 
between a business and a school, uh, a lot of folks don't see it because I think superintendents and business officials and other central office folk do a good job of trying to keep that out of the classroom. But these are the things that make up a, a superintendent's day, you know, uh, transportation routes, the data, um, and costs for building. In all my classes and all my coursework, the amount of people that were part of that training and very little was spent on how to run the business side. It's kind of, you know, I don't know if you, you know any doctors or dentists or whatever, and the number one thing they'll tell you is, man, they taught me how to fix mm -hmm. teeth or how to take care of people. What they didn't tell me is that unless I was going to work for another organization, that, that I was going to have to be a businessman. And I think that's true with education as well. Oh, 100%. I, I'm a firm believer, you know, when I talk to people about uh, pursuing career options, I use the analogy of, of other small business owners that... I may uh, like something, I may like guitars and I like playing guitars and I like working on guitars, but that doesn't necessarily mean I should open a guitar shop because running a guitar shop or running any small business is about uh, managing inventory, um, handling sales, having a POS system, you know, dealing with employees, maybe uh, paying salaries, all, all those other things. Uh, it, it's similar with school administration is that some of your best teachers uh, make poor administrators because they're very good at teaching and their passion is for teaching. If their passion's not for running the business, um, I don't know how you do it. it. It's things like at year end managing food service in inventory or even just, uh, you know, what Hemlock and a bunch of our other locals did during this pandemic. Um, the, the early stages of the pandemic weren't very classroom focused. You're focusing on getting food and other services out to kids right away. Those are logistics issues, business issues. Yeah, there's a, a lot of logistics involved, uh, of way more than the average person might see or know. And I think, you, you know, you said earlier that we do a good job of kind of masking that, keeping it away. And I think it is, it's true. And I think it's important that we do that. At the same time, the, the obviously the goal of this conversation is to kind of shed some light into an area that that many of us kind of it's kind of the dark room for film and yeah. um you know it's kind of you know we want this beautiful picture of education at the end but you know as leaders a lot of times we go in that dark room and, and are working in that area that nobody knows yeah so, a good example of that with you, know, you just think about textbook uh textbooks and or curriculum and you get a team of teachers together and maybe some administrators and they look at what's going to be the best material for this curriculum. Um, and then once once all that sexy work is done and, and the material selected, it gets kicked back to either the superintendent or the business official who has to figure out how to bid it. Um, you know, does it meet the bid thresholds? Is it a single per, you know, a, a sole proprietor purchase? Uh, is it something that requires board approval? How do we get it in, you know, ordered and receive it in time and organize it when it is received so the teachers can have it? Um, that's all the stuff that I, I like that terminology is, is the dark room so that we can get the nice developed pictures into the classroom and into kids' hands. You know, I, I, I'm glad you brought up curriculum. I always tell the, the team when we're doing that is, hey, I need the top two. You can tell me who your favorite is, but I, I, I don't want to pigeonhole ourselves when we're negotiating the best deal. You know, we've been able to actually deliver, I think, every time on what the consensus is for the best uh, 
but I did do remember as a young, um, young educator one time, uh, a district going with, you know, opposite of what the, the, the voice was, and it was difficult. But it, and then when I found out the rationale was like, well, the other option was five times more expensive. It's like, oh, well, that makes that makes a little bit of sense. Yeah, so it's Scott, that backdoor stuff, uh, you know, it's it's more expensive or it's not going to be available on time. Uh, a lot a lot of those things can play into the decision besides just what do we like best. Right. So, Scott, in what ways do you say, hey, schools are not like a business? Oh, that's a, that's a different question altogether. Um, right. I, I think the, the most obvious way is we're not producing a product. Um, we're educating kids and, and there's a huge difference between, you know, you think about the traditional factory and, and the line that's putting out a product based on a spec. Um, here, the, the kids that come to us are, are different from each one's very unique um, and there's no one size fits all solution. And, um, you know, it's, it's not like those businesses where, okay, well, we can have a defective product and you know, or a defective item and, and move on. These aren't widgets, they're, they're kids. There's, uh, you know, they're people's children. Um, you know, it, it, it impacts how we approach everything. Um, you know, if, the, if a cost increase for us, like say the state pension tax increases, um, we can't just increase the cost of our finished good, like, you know, maybe a GM could, you know, they can just adjust their price. Um, it's not even like a service. I, I don't even think you can compare it to the medical field. Um, this is a long-term engagement. We're dealing with kids for 13 years in the K-12 environment, and sometimes longer when we're talking about special ed or more creative programs with early college. Um, we're dealing with kids for 13 years, and it's not just, uh, you know, you go to see a doctor for an annual checkup or, or when something's wrong. We see them all day long, every day, all school year. So seven hours a day um, with kids for 190 days a year for 13 years. The, there's no other business that does what we do. Um, it requires a lot of trust and relationship building between staff and students, uh, but also between staff and parents. Um, there, there just really is no, no business that does what teachers do. It's a... Yeah, there, I always say that education is a relationship business. Mm -hmm. it, uh, it's all about relationships and your ability to connect with others and, you know, to, to work in, the, in craft that uh, relationship in a way that professional, yeah, productive. At the end of the day, those guys, I disagree a little bit. We are, you know, I mean, we're providing a service, but one of the things that, uh, that in, and maybe this is simplistic, but I think that the you know the taxpayers are paying so much money mm -hmm. for, for schools to educate, um, you know, and so we have this this money coming in, and at the end of the day, uh, I feel like our our product that we're growing is human capital, mm -hmm. and that the the kind of the 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 league and the lag measure the the lead measure is that we're growing human capital. We want to see kids grow. And then the lag is at the end of the day, you know, we want our gross national product to go up. I mean, that, that's at a very major scale. Um, and you wonder, uh, you know, some of the things that we're doing, we're in a little bit different situation in the sense that when when there was the pandemic and we were shut down, we were educating kids on that Monday. 
And uh, mm -hmm. what we've seen is some of our 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 lag measures like NWA or uh, SAT scores and things like that that we can actually get a handle on. We're we're very excited to see the outcomes that we're able to produce, uh, knowing that it was a different uh, learning environment. Now, I, I don't think anything replaces face to face, uh, but you know we were able to still produce some really good results uh, for kids and able to build. Yeah, so, teachers were really tasked with sort of, I guess, if, if we look at the manufacturing model, they were kind of building the plane while it was in the air uh, this last spring. Um, that's what I think really makes education unique is, uh, yeah, we are trying to have a product at the end. And yes, there are measurement tools, but um, it's not as simple as somebody designs the prod product and, and you have some engineer put some really good plans together and then you hand it off to workers to reproduce that over and over and over our input with these kids is different every day and and just imagine a teacher with 30 kids each one of them different trying to do differentiated instruction i just don't think there's a private sector comparison no you know that's interesting it's because the raw material that we get is all different mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I think that when you're dealing with the highest quality raw material, almost anybody can do a really good job. But when you're dealing with some really at risk, tough situations, and, you know, we're tasked with really changing the future, molding the future of some of these, these families, these kids. And we know the number one impactor, the number one factor in their future success is going to come down to education. It's just so mission critical, mm -hmm. you know, mission critical. So, Scott, you know, we talked a little bit. We actually opened up with this kind of question and dialogue. But, you know, can you walk us through what is the relationship? You know, you, you had mentioned some percentages on human resources mm -hmm. to our budgets. But what is the relationship between HR and business? Yeah, I, I think they're invariably tied together in, in our business and in, in the business of educating kids. It means we're in, we're in the business of providing teachers, right? We're in the business of providing uh, safe learning environments, clean learning environments. So that's all staff driven. Um, I think the figure I shared was 70 to 80 percent of the district's budget, overall budget is going to be tied up into people. And there's there's I don't think there's any other business that's quite like that. Um, when I was in high school and college, uh, my job was managing a local McDonald's in Hastings, Michigan, and their labor cost at McDonald's, which considers itself a service, um, was 25% of sales for, for, the, for the day. That was the target between 20, 25 and 28%. We're at 70 to 80% in, in our field, um, which, which means the whole budget is tied into our human capital and and our, our staffing essentially so i mean aside from processes there's plenty, plenty of processes that marry together because you just think about the um the process from start to finish with paying a teacher is um their their salary is set by a collective bargaining agreement which is bargained by the human resources department and, and their placement on that salary schedule whether it's based on education or years of experience is something handled by HR, but then that flows right into the payroll system. And by the time you know a paycheck kicks out, that payroll is expensed to the appropriate account numbers so that it matches the statewide accounting system. So, I mean, there's just a single example of how things 
marry together. You, you can do the same with any of the employee benefits and meeting the Affordable Care Act requirements and how one foot of that is in HR and one foot of that is in uh, finance. Yeah, when you think about, you know, schools, HR, business, all those kind of things, what are some of the things that has happened? You know, your career, you're almost 20 years in. What are some of the things you go, man, This these were really good innovations that have occurred in the last uh, 20 years in education? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I think there's there's a lot of people, even just around the county, um, I, th I think uh, you even did this in Hemlock, is just thinking creatively about the salary schedule. That for decades, you can even find... Uh, salary schedules back to the 1910s that look the same way they did in 2000. Then the numbers would be different, but essentially, you know, teachers are there for a year, they get a raise. If they have a certain credential, they can get a raise. And, and that pattern was unchanged. But in the last 10 years, as school districts have had to get more competitive and, and teachers have become more difficult to find, um, uh, we've seen collapsing down of the step system. We've seen increase in starting pay to try and really attract people to the field or districts to become nimble as far as their logistics. Well, I, I'll tell you what, the, I, I love your example with the salary schedule, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and just how to nimble, nimble education systems are, you know, a lot of times we get, uh, get a black eye in the public for being um, less than, you know, fast or swift. And, and I have to disagree. I think that education systems are very swift and very capable of handling change. And, and uh, we've been throwing out a, a number of changes. One of the things I uh, advocated with and, and was very excited, we have one of the, I think we have currently the highest starting salary. And I, I've been very hesitant to to say that because as soon as you say it, somebody's going to try to best you. Um, and uh, when we did it, we collapsed those five steps, uh, condensed them, and and uh, really upped the the uh, the pay for our starting teachers. Because you just figure that over that same time that we we're giving two or three percent uh, increases for the starting wage to the the top wage, the starting wage, those people were coming out of college with ten thousand dollars of debt mm -hmm. and getting that starting wage now it's twenty thirty forty fifty thousand dollars worth of you know debt and when your choice is to to go into education you know you're not going to get rich no matter mm -hmm. what job you have in our field there are even nationally there's only a few jobs that are really that that pay super super well and even with those jobs it's not uh, uh it's location dependent. And so it's not necessarily really well, you know, big money when you consider where they're living. So Scott, what, you know, I threw that question at you, kind of a curveball. But so if you were king of the day, um, and, and maybe this needs to be more gender neutral, maybe it's king or queen or, or the leader, you know, supreme ruler, leader, you know, whatever you want to call yourself for the day, and you were able to structure schools in any way you wished and that you thought would be the most effective. What, what might you do? What might, what might schools look like? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. Um, hmm. I guess um, 
if there's one thing I could change, um, it might not necessarily, maybe, maybe I'm going to step outside the question and Kobayashi Maru this, but um, the one thing that I would want to change is the esteem for educators. Um, I, I would want that raised in the eyes of our politicians and our communities. Um, educators have been doing more with less for well over two decades. Um, and certainly the coronavirus uh, pandemic has exacerbated it. Um, we've seen, you know, just in the last 15 years, cuts to the pension so that new teachers uh, are not coming in with the same benefit structure, almost no pension at this point in time. Um, increased costs for benefits above and beyond what we see in the private sector and extremely low salary growth. What, what you were just referencing in the, in the last question is that while, while you've been remaining competitive in Hemlock by increasing the lowest uh, you know, the entry salary, um, the salaries just have not kept pace with private sector. We see that in the business office. There was a time where um, accountants would uh, go to auditing firms for a couple of years and then try and land a school job. And now it's very difficult to find school business managers. Um, so, I mean, we, we don't have the financial resources, the salary or the benefits to, as you said, make somebody rich by coming <laughs> to public education. Um, so they, they have to do it for an altruistic reason. They have to love the work. Um, they have to do it because they want to make a difference. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of places in this country where you can walk into the grocery store and hold your head high as an educator because the media, the politicians have spent so much time you know, just using educators as a whipping post. Um, you know, in the last 10 months, we've really seen the value that educators provide. Um, they've really shown their worth. I mean, when schools shut down, it shut down the entire economy. People couldn't go to work. People had to stay home to help educate their kids. And that was even with school districts bending over backwards to find ways to still reach kids. Um, educators in the last 10 months have, have been asked to use their skills and knowledge and their time to develop these new ways to reach kids and continue, continue their education. And honestly, I think educators are tired. Um, so if I could ask anything, it'd be just to raise the respect for the profession. I'd ask the country to see teachers the same way you and I do. So what I heard from you, Scott, with that question, you were king of the day. You were, if Scott Sawyer was supreme leader, so we changed you from deputy superintendent to supreme leader, the number one thing you would do is ensure that educators felt valued in respect. Yeah, 100%. If it, I, I've spent a little bit of time traveling through Europe, and and I, it's been it's been a little while, but uh, my experience there is if if you were a teacher, um, you were like a celebrity. Uh, you check into your hotel room, let them know you're a teacher, you get an upgrade. Um, you know th those types of things, and and your point's really well taken that we really are judged by the you know, the least among us. We're judged by that bottom five or 10%. And it's not that that bottom five or 10% doesn't exist in other fields. It exists with police officers and postal workers, um, in factory workers, uh, all over the place. But it's it's only educators where the 10% is, is let out there, right? That that's the one that we're going to be judged by. You know, all, all factory workers aren't judged by the last guy who got fired. Um, but that, you know, doctors 
aren't all doctors aren't judged by the worst doctors, right? There, there's some pretty big scandals that came out of Michigan with, with the medical profession, but that didn't shut down how people felt about doctors as a profession. Um, and so it, it's just unique that that's so pervasive among teachers. Yeah, I, it, it is very unique. What I, I find in some studies I've read is that people believe that information as a whole but not at the micro level. So they, they're believe, buying into it at the macro level, but then they go, oh no, it's not my kid's teachers. Mm -hmm. you know, at that micro level, they're not buying in, but at the macro level, where it really influences our social norms, our uh, influence in uh, Lansing and Washington, D.C., where it has that impact, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it definitely, definitely matters. So Which, that's where that really impacts who gets attracted to the profession. Um, we can all cite a, a great teacher. And, and like you said, that most parents love their child's teacher and those relationships have really been built. But it's this kind of overall commentary about educators in general that prevents good people from seeking that out as, as a profession, which is what we're really starting to feel the pinch on right now at the local level. Absolutely. You know, right now, the the uh, it is actually looking, you know, and I'm in a situation where very attractive place to go. You can still go to the grocery store and feel like a kind of a local celebrity. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a, uh, a great atmosphere. We have people who want to come and work for us and will leave other schools to do it. That said, it is going to be such a tremendous, difficult HR environment. How are we going to survive that, Scott, as a, as a K-12? Yeah, I think it, it speaks to that nimbleness that, uh, one, we have to be um, competitive in our own pool, right? And, and I'm, I'm like sort of unique that way because you have rural districts around you, but you also are going to compete with people who look for jobs in Midland. Um, so it's finding ways to be creative, whether it's with the salary schedule um, or with other benefits offerings. But additionally, it's it's just attracting people into the field or, you know, uh, finding more unique ways. We we tend to become more restrictive when there's a huge you know supply of teachers, and so it was you had to go through. A, you know, regular bachelor's degree program in order to get a teaching certificate. And now what we can see is maybe people who are retiring out of other professions going back and, and going through an abbreviated program. They already have the, the knowledge base and now they just need the pedagogy or the skill set. And I, I think we're just going to have to, um, as a state, as a county and, and as local districts, become, um, you know, more flexible in less rigid in our rules as to how how do we find the best and brightest uh, to be teachers and how do we get them credentialed to do so? Um, you know, Saginaw Valley began a program, the ACR program at SVSU, um, to try and, and you know mainstream some other professionals that already have a knowledge base, already have a degree, and get them into a classroom a little bit faster. And, and we all know there's pros and cons with that. Um, but I think, you know, as we've been talking at our field is in, in HR, we have to take who comes to us and figure out how to make them better. And that's a changed mindset from 15 or 20 years ago, where it was just, I want a, I want a great teacher. I'm going to stick them in a classroom and uh, they're going to be a great teacher. 
Um, these, you know, whether it's a generational difference as we transition from, uh, you know, millennials to Zoomers, um, these people want more support and we're going to have to find ways of giving it to them. And, and that's going to be leaning on our administrators and our building principals more. Um, you know, what, what I would what I or people older than me would suggest is, oh, these, these folks need to be spoon fed. They don't. Um, they, it's not spoon feeding. It's just a difference in how people are entering the workforce and really what they're looking to get out of the job. And if people want more support, um, more mentoring, then that's that's also where we're going to have to adapt and provide that. Well, you know, it's interesting, too, is, is I don't think that this next generation intends to be in the field for 30, 40 years. Right. That, that's a fair, you know, I, I know for for our generation, you know, with the retirement system and everything else, you know, you kind of were like, okay, hey, this is a, you know, maybe a financial sacrifice to be in the field of education, but there's a lot of other perks, security, good health benefits, you know, the, you know, you're not gonna have to work on Christmas day. I mean, mm -hmm. that's it. You know, you're not going to have to work on some of the holidays that are, you know, allow you to have a family structure and stuff like that. But what's happened over the last 10 to 20 years in education with, you know, and I'm going to be maybe the odd man out sometimes on this. Some of this stuff has been a good thing. You know, and I, I think it's just the way educational leaders and school systems, boards of educations have dealt with it. But some of the stuff has been good. I mean, it's challenged us to be very service-driven, very uh, to look at our model and to meet the needs of our our families and our students. What? Uh, um, but I don't think that educators are going to stay in the field for forty years. Anymore. I don't think that's practical because there people are just not staying for one company anymore for longer than maybe five, seven years. Do you think that's true as we move forward that we're going to be seeing a lot more changeover in, in classrooms? Oh yeah, hundred. I I agree with you completely, and uh, I I I think I would be odd man out with you on some of those legislative changes that came in the last decade have been great because uh, we as administrators have a lot more tools to ensure that we have qualified, passionate teachers in the classroom. Uh, whereas our forefathers in administration didn't have nearly as many tools. If somebody wanted to do a poor job, they could continue to do a poor job. We now have accountability measures. I, I love it. And I agree. I think the benefit structure with education has been changed such that people won't be able to stay in it for 30 or 40 years. I think what we, what we ought to be doing is attracting some of the best and brightest right out of school we can keep them for five or 10 years, and then they're, they're going to move on to other passions. Um, and it, it's just a, a little bit of that change in dynamic with the concept that of uh, strategic planning that came out of the late 80s in, in the idea that, um, you know, maybe labor is more fluid than we expected. And, and, and there's been some, uh, I guess, expectation change on, on the labor side where they've said, you know, it's no longer about getting out of school getting a job and retiring from that job because in, in the private sector that's darn near impossible um so i think you know we're, we're suffering if if you want to use the word suffering from that shift in mindset and we're going to have to adapt to it as well absolutely so scott any party words for our listening audience um sure i i just think um you know 
educators in in general need to also hold themselves out as uh, as positively as possible. You know, to to talk about the great things there are in the education. There's nobody who can market us better than ourselves. Um, and for those of you who are listening, thinking about school administration, whether it be a principal or school finance or superintendency, um, just don't underestimate the role that human resources and finance play into the job that often we shortchange ourselves by thinking, you know, I'm going to be a strong instructional leader um, for my staff. And that's, that's a huge part that's so important. But you have to have passion for this other side because it's going to take up a good chunk of your day. Um, you know, uh, test scores can be very important and what we do with our kids can be very important. But when you read the headlines, people are losing their jobs over HR and financial issues. So this has to be a strong suit. And for anybody who's considering administration, um, I'd, I'd highly recommend they look at a business office job. Um, it's very rewarding. It, it's uh, it's much sexier than it sounds. It's not just accounting. Um, and it's, it's often a straight road to a superintendency. And right now it's um, wide open. You, you see business office jobs posted for months with no applicants. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a strong proponent of you can take an accountant and teach them schools. And that was the traditional model. But you can take a school person and teach them accounting as well. It, it, it truly is not rocket science. You know, I, I, I love that um, plug for the business office. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I will say that uh, the field there has changed so much uh, that the, the amount of candidates, even if you're a, a desirable location, desirable work, work area, that the amount of candidates for that office is just not there. The, the I, other you know, oh, the other piece though too is is when it is there so when you do have candidates that say you know what I think I, I like that when you talk to them sometimes they have this fallacy that you know it's like well you know I was just gonna love working in school you know summers off and <laughs> you kind of just you know, it's like uh, you know you you don't understand do you and they're like what do you mean and it's like Actually, the busy, busiest time of the year for central office, business office, is likely not to be the school year. It's actually probably going to be as we butt up against June 30th, the school year's you know fiscal end, when we're doing all of you know you got to do prep for on. You're doing two different budgets. You're doing um, hiring and preparing for next year. You've got a ton of state uh, reporting. And so it's just the, the opposite of what people expect. Oh yeah, you gotta love traveling in February to get your vacations in if you wanna do this. But I you know, I, I agree, the, the accounting field is not transitioning directly into schools the way it was. And I think this is, this is another area to reimagine. Um, you, you know, you think about a building, a, a high school with 30 teachers in it, only one of them can become a principal because you're only going to have one principal in that building. But somebody needs to become the business manager. And, and having done this years ago, transitioned out of the classroom into the director of finance role, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of learning. Um, it required a lot of trust and a lot of communication while you learn. But if you're willing to put in that effort, 
um, I'd say my classroom experience is what's benefited me most in these roles, whether it's HR or finances. I understand, I like to think I do, a, a little bit of what it takes. And just like, I don't, I don't know that a superintendent can truly run a district if they haven't spent classroom time in. I think, I think that's a, a big bonus for anybody who wants to enter the business office and, and any teacher out there who doesn't mind working with numbers, I, I hope that they consider this as a viable career option. It's very rewarding um, and, and probably puts you at the decision-making table more often than a principalship would. I would agree with you there. I mean, definitely, uh, you know, rewarding, um, you know, type of thing. You know, when you when you transition, I, I do think that um, I don't want to under underwhelm people with the idea that you can go from teaching algebra on Monday <laughs> to being the business director on Tuesday. And, and, and I, I think that often, you know, I will say I'm a you know, former economics teacher mm -hmm. and uh, very business minded, a former union leader. And so it would be easy to throw darts at the business manager. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know this. And I, I think that uh, it is not rocket science, but it is a, a lot of it to go from algebra, you know, one mm -hmm. to being the director of business that you had to do a lot of work. Oh, yeah. You, you spend your whole first year and in, in, uh, maybe time after that uh, not knowing what you're doing. And, um, you know, what's nice is you have organizations out there like MSBO who partner with folks. Um, I've, I've mentored uh, a few. I had a great mentor with Rhonda Troshill out at Ovidalsi. She's retired now, but I wouldn't have survived if not for her. And I've done my best to pass that along. There's, I've, I've seen technology uh, individuals transition into the business office and supported them through that. You definitely have to rely on other people. And you definitely have to be strong in other areas while you're developing the area and the accounting side. Um, it, it's a real challenge, uh, but it can be it, it can be time well spent uh, with rewarding payoff. Well, hey, thank you so much, Scott. 